there, and welcome to the COVID-19 and Food podcast series from the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Una Bradley and I'm the Communications Officer for the Institute. In this series, I will be speaking to some of our top researchers about the effects of the coronavirus on food systems, food integrity and our relationship with food. But, and here's the disclaimer coming up, we are still recording this series remotely, so please forgive any technical hitches or blips in sound quality. My guest today is Declan Billington, MBE, a key player in the Northern Ireland agri-food sector and an honorary professor of practice at Queen's. He also sits on our industry advisory board here at the Institute. The CEO of John Thompson and Sons, the largest multi-species feed mill in Europe. Declan has held a number of leadership roles, including Vice Chair of the Northern Ireland Food and Drink Association and Chair of CBI Northern Ireland. A champion of innovation and high standards in food safety, he has also been representing the Northern Ireland food industry at national Brexit negotiations campaigning to protect the interests of local farmers, food producers and retailers. So Declan, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invite. I can only imagine the past you know, weeks and months have been something of a roller coaster as our local food industry has had to demonstrate incredible agility to meet the demands of COVID-19, not to mention Brexit. I mean, there have just been so many challenges posed by the pandemic, changes in consumer demand, social distancing and, and people off on sick leave in food processing plants, the shutdown of hotels and restaurants causing hiccups all the way along the supply chain. Is it, is it possible to pick out the single most challenging effect or, or is that just ridiculous? <laughs> That's a challenge in itself. What I would say is the biggest challenge is to try and keep ahead of the biowave that is COVID from uh, disruption to supply chains to changes in consumer demand to regulation on the hoof about social distancing and mitigations. All of those things were happening in a very dynamic way and we all know that six months from now with 2020 hindsight people will review the actions of business with the knowledge of what has happened, whereas today we're staring into, effectively or worse, staring into an abyss, had to think on our feet, had to be agile, and had to move very quickly to meet each and every challenge that came along in a way that protected our employees and protected our supply chains. Yeah, it's no mean feat, uh, clearly, and obviously very much an ongoing situation and a, and a changing uh, situation as well. So, you know, the lockdown has has clearly created um, very large difficulties. I suppose I'm wondering, is there any sense in which it has also exposed weaknesses that may have already been in the food system? Absolutely. Um, and it's a very good question to reflect on. We live in a world that wants um, immediate changes, immediate savings. Everybody thinks short term. Uh, supermarkets are chasing day in, day out cost reductions, price breaks, alternative suppliers. Um, the UK is only about 60, 65% self-sufficient in food. 
our main supplier for about two thirds of what we import is Europe. Um, but there are still issues with supply chains further out. So what it exposed was the risk in extended supply chains um, the risk in the available capacity of the UK industry to meet consumer demand. And it was actually, in my mind, a near miss that we're almost at that tipping point of not being able to cope. So how were the industry able to cope with keeping the nation fed? First of all, the supply chains are shorter now than where they might be in three years time because we trade a lot with Europe. Second, um, we have offshored some of our production, but still have a critical base. About 65% of what we eat is produced in the UK. Um, and the third issue actually is a fascinating one. The breakdown of the catering channel and the loss of that channel for demand enable businesses to redirect production and staff to service the supermarket channel. If that channel hadn't have broken down and consumers moved to a narrower range of products from um, from already well well resourced and well organized supply chains, we would have struggled. We couldn't have kept the supermarkets and the fast food channels both going at the same time based on the byway of the hittest. It was fortunate or unfortunate that the catering channel shut down and resources were able to be concentrated in servicing um, a smaller range of products with very good logistics in the supermarkets. So lessons to be learned then possibly for the future. I mean, will it be possible, do you think, to, to take some of these insights and apply them in a way that maybe builds more resilience? I think there's some very important messages um, that come out of this uh, when we're at the mouth of restructuring our trading relationships with the rest of the world. Um, that food security is very, very important. And the industry has been hammering on food security for several years now, um, but it has not been taken seriously by successive UK governments. And one wonders whether the near miss that was COVID is enough for them to sit up and pay attention. I'll, I'll give you some additional examples. Um, we were able to keep the supermarkets stocks and the shelves, product on the shelves, not fully stocked, but we managed it. But at the same time, we started to find supply of feedstocks, which are extended supply chains from Asia and South America, were threatened and we saw price spikes of 30% in some commodities, and um, simply because some of the ports that were shipping them closed down, so you couldn't access them. Other issues that came together were the risks um, when ports did ship down, shut down, product was sitting on the port side. And two months later, when they started up and they started shifting those goods, we have found on receipt of them that the microbiological counts are quite high. The micro challenge has increased dramatically. That's for the animal feed that I understand. What about human food? Um, and, you know, the long distances while sitting on a port for two months in the heat. You know, there are serious issues about those supply chains. Now, DER, DEFRA did commission some work and is in the process of looking at the long-term future of agri-food in the UK, trying to find a trade-off between value to the consumer, the environmental impacts of what we do. Um, I'm not so sure if food security was high on the radar until this happened. And fundamentally, 
if we hadn't been able to feed the nation, what would have happened on our high streets as people fought for food? And there have been warning shots on this before. Several years ago, when crop failures happened in Asia on rice and in uh, Eastern Europe on wheat, countries stopped exporting. And the reason they stopped exporting was to ensure that prices remained low for products trapped in those countries. But that was done at the expense of the UK finding price spikes. And that was with animal feed stocks. What's it going to be like if we decide to offshore 40% of our production to supply chains across the world um, and a COVID example hits or there's a crop failure in those countries? The short termism of our view of the world is directly contras or is, is in direct opposition with the long term needs of our nation. And I'm not so sure the policy has reconciled those yet. So you're pointing up the need for more sustainability, um, Declan, by the sounds of it, um, and perhaps the um, the bill facing us and facing the UK government and, and the devolved administration here in Northern Ireland might also concentrate mines. Um, I read somewhere recently that the UK had a trade deficit at the moment of 24 billion for food. Um, do we have a corresponding figure for Northern Ireland or, you know, how, how much trouble are we actually in, in terms of the industry, in, in terms of economics? Um, in terms of the industry, Northern Ireland did not have a problem with keeping uh, Northern Ireland fed and meat and dairy products. For We export 75% of what we produce to the UK um, and to the rest of Europe. Um, so we're a net exporter. Um, and therefore, on the face of it, for, you know, uh, things like cereals, things like uh, that we don't grow locally um, would have been at risk for us, you know, your fresh green vegetables and things like that. Um, rice, and as I find when I wanted pasta, you couldn't get it for love nor money once Italy closed time. But the staples, Northern Ireland could have continued supplying the Northern Ireland uh, population. But there were times when we were worried that the supply chains were going to break down to a stage where we could produce milk, but we couldn't process it, mm -hmm. or we couldn't ship it. And that therefore there was a gap between farm and fork in Northern Ireland. Um, and we were able to manage that. But that's where the concept of key workers and hero workers stepped in and food heroes was the need for people to take the risk when they were dealing with an unknown virus, the contamination or infection rate of which was not really understood, to step into the breach and continue the logistics of getting from farm to factory to fork uh, in a time of extreme uncertainty. So um, in terms of production, not a problem for staples for Northern Ireland. In terms of getting it through the door, issues we managed to avoid thanks to the dedication of the people who work for us and concerns that we may also have struggled of servicing the GB and European markets as as more extended chains start to break down. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there, you know, the disruption along the chains and, and you know, I, I certainly read in recent weeks about supermarkets uh, sourcing meat from Poland while British farmers were forced to stockpile uh, their own meat. I mean, 
how how relevant is that to the Northern Ireland um, picture? You know, I, I know it's a thing that a lot of commentators would argue that the UK food industry is not self-reliant enough um, and is importing food that could be produced locally. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Polish supplies are a logistics chain that exists today. Um, the challenge is that the way uh, UK food is presented um, on supermarket shelves is that it is the supermarket reputation it stands behind the food and it doesn't really feel that it's being differentiated between British and European with the exception of the red tractor label. It's even more so an issue in the catering channel where you tend not to see these things being disclosed. Um, so there, there is an issue that on the one hand, the consumer wants a lovely environment that they can holiday in in the weekend. They want the farming base to be sustainable. And in Northern Ireland, many of our farmers are fourth, fifth, sixth generation. It's fascinating when you talk to them that they plan their plans for the farm are about their plans for their grandchildren running the farm. So it's very clear that they have a strong stewardship and long-term vision. Um, and yet price, price, price is the pressure they're seeing all the time where this value, this stewardship role, this concern, this family trying to produce quality products at the same time as managing the environment is not reflected in and how the product is sold on supermarket shelves. And that again is the contradiction between delivering a balanced approach where we can do more while in parallel in partnership with the environment versus least cost production, which is you're competing against lowest cost production centers in Europe um, that damage the long-term viability of the industry, but also damage the ability of those stewards of the land to protect the environment if they can't draw an income from it. Yeah, you're very much talking about different types of value there and, and it's not mm. all it's not all about money. Um, I mean, do we need a buy local campaign? Because, you know, it, it seems to me that the public often um, are quite enthusiastic about that type of thing. Yeah, um, no, buy local wouldn't really help Northern Ireland since three quarters of what we produced is not sold locally and therefore a sort of a buy British campaign would work more for us than buy a regional buy campaign. Um, but there is a lot, lot of value and integrity within the UK production systems and um, very high animal welfare standards, very high factory standards um, very high farm standards and all of that underpins what's on the shelf. And I sometimes feel that there are two supply chains onto the shelf in, in the UK. The first is one with very high integrity, but it has a cost associated with it. And the second one is a lower cost, less integrity. Um, we know, for example, Horsegate was meat that came in from Poland. Um, and anytime there's a challenge about integrity, we look into the UK supply chains to prove to the consumer everything is safe. When there's another supply chain sitting beside it that doesn't have the same integrity and is airbrushed out of the conversation and until society is educated into the real value of what's on their shelves um, we will struggle to deliver both the integrity and the price point mm. which, which kind of brings me on to a related point about reputation and, and reputational damage from 
these last few months. I mean, on the one hand, you've mentioned the hashtag Food Heroes, um, which which um, rightly acknowledged all the hard work that the food industry and the food workers have been doing. But on the other hand, the industry um, has also been beset by COVID outbreaks in meat plants, um, including here in Northern Ireland, and questions raised over uh, conditions for workers. Even within the last few days, you know, we've had a, um, a few reports of new outbreaks at major UK plants, um, including the main supplier of supermarket chicken. How does the industry sort of cope with that or what's the best approach to, to that sort of negative publicity? Uh, the answer is you deal with the facts, but that presupposes journalists reporting the issues like to have the facts. Um, and you may raised a number of very good points. All businesses are being tarred by the events that might exist in one business. Um, so there are challenges in a poultry processor in England, but the poultry processor in Northern Ireland, when COVID hit, moved very, very rapidly to mitigate the risks of people working closely together. Indeed, they pulled together the meat, the red and white meat sectors and the dairy sectors to produce um, a protocol before the government even got round to issuing guidance notes. Our industries in Northern Ireland were writing protocols on how best to mitigate risk the type of protections that need to be adopted and the approaches that need to be adopted. So our industry was well ahead of the curve in addressing this. And as lockdown unwinds, other manufacturing are coming to the agri-food sector to see the lessons learned. And yet we're being tarred by a brush in the, in the events that occurred elsewhere. I mean, one of the issues for me, for example, as you say, is this sheer focus on our industry. Um, you know, almost 800 people have died from COVID in Northern Ireland. Every one of those is is a death that is surrounded by sadness. And for all of us, fear and confusion about the risks and how we manage those risks, especially when we go into business. But looking at those statistics, our poultry industry, um, you know, if you if they were no more nor less risky than the rest of Northern Ireland society. You'd be looking at about three or four deaths from that industry based on the number of people that work there. So when I look at the stats, I actually say, actually, the issues around agri-food are they have a lower incidences of mortality um, than society in general. And yet there is this focus that something is wrong, that something has gone wrong in our local industries. And it's very hard to overcome that perception where the media are chasing a headline rather than the substance. And employees naturally are afraid of anything that isn't involved with two meter social distancing, despite the mitigations of protective clothing, of uh, isolated working, of staggering shifts, of spreading the work out, of putting perspex screens between each operation. All of those things were done very, very rapidly. And it is very hard um, because it's not good media story. It doesn't buy airtime. You know, a good panic buys airtime. Good practice generally isn't as attractive to the media when they want to present the story. So the message I would give is one, a lot of good work was done on the hoof by the industry collaborating, writing best practice that others have copied against the backdrop of adverse publicity that is very hard to counter. And yes, other businesses elsewhere in the UK and in the US are struggling. 
Um, but you have to ask yourself, do they all have the same practices or are some managers and some businesses so committed to their workforce that they will move heaven and earth to protect the food heroes that work for them? And then is it right that they're just tarred with the same brush as everybody else? So you're pretty confident that standards in Northern Ireland are actually very high relative to the rest of the world? We had conference calls every week, the meat, the dairy, the poultry, uh, all the sectors. In fact, we were running conference calls two or three times a week, exchanging information, knowledge, best practice, that if someone had a good idea, it was fast-tracked across all of the sectors almost overnight. I'm not aware of any other part of the UK that had that level of cross-sectoral engagement um, to make sure at every turn we were protecting our workforce and at the same time keeping the nation fed. If we hadn't been able to keep the nation fed, what would have happened in the high streets when supermarkets were running out of food and people were panicking? So there was a balance always to be struck between asking people to step into the breach, protecting them as best we can, and ensuring that by stepping, by, if we had done the alternative of stepping back, we wouldn't have made matters worse for society. Um, and that's why you would consider them to be heroes because not understanding the risks, they still stepped into the breach, albeit management did an excellent job of taking risk off the table where possible. You mentioned exports earlier, Declan, and um, you mentioned also that around three quarters of the food produced in Northern Ireland uh, last year, for example, was exported. Uh, there's long been talk of a marketing body for Northern Ireland food to boost uh, reputation and sales abroad. How important do you think that is, maybe as part of the recovery and the future proofing? Well, I've been involved in, in that project for a number of years now. And it started off before Brexit as an opportunity to diversify into other markets. Um, markets around the world are fascinating from the point of view that we all value the breast meat that goes into our burgers and, for example, poultry. But in Asia, they actually prefer the leg meat and want to get rid of the breast meat. And so in the UK, we have a low value product that would command a better price in Asia. Um, but we need access to those markets to capture the value. There's often harvest failures or famine, not famines, but uh, weather issues that affect livestock. And there are short term opportunities in markets around the world to capture value. Also, uh, the reputation that we have in terms of uh, wholesome products, safe, natural, great brand images that are very attractive to countries uh, for example, like China, that have had their own challenges around integrity. So we can play different attributes to different markets, safety in some markets, natural, wholesome, and produced by people that have for generations been caring about the product and the landscapes. Um, but you need to be able to build the reputation, build the footprint and get in there. And that was the original proposition. When Brexit happened, the question was, well, we're at risk of not being able to trade into Europe, so we could manage that risk by developing our routes to market and our footprints in other countries in Asia and America where, where we already are trading with them. But if we were to expand our trade with them, we would be managing risk 
of a no deal. Um, and so that made an awful lot of sense. And yet we could never get over the inertia that tends to exist uh, within government at times to actually back good ideas with money to make it happen. Um, mm. So we're sitting here, we were ahead of the curve across the whole of the UK and thinking about this. When Brexit had happened, um, Great British Food was developed, similar concept, trying to open the markets. Um, so the industry was innovative and forward thinking. We just couldn't get government to keep up with us and support us. Mm. So a lot of things come down to government investment, I suppose, at the end of the day. And and I guess recovering from COVID will be the same uh, story in terms of where is the investment going to come from? Yeah, well, there's two issues there. The first is that uh, we didn't have an executive for a while. And when you reallocate money from one area to another, because you're investing in the future prosperity of our economy. So you have two things you can do with your money. You can provide subvention, in which case you're continuing to support a poor outcome for the economy, or you can invest in prosperity um, in the hopes that you deliver better outcomes for people that don't require government interventions. But generally, you never have enough money to do both. So choices have to be made. Choices have to be made by politicians. And for three or four years, we had no politicians to make those choices. And so the civil service machine was very reluctant to make a commitment. Now we have an executive. They have a big challenge about the short term addressing the challenges rising from people who've lost their jobs versus investing for future jobs for them, which requires money to be put in up front and for a number of years to pass as momentum builds before delivering those outcomes. So quite a challenge for them. But if if you don't invest in the future, you know, assign society to the same challenges in five or 10 years time as they live with now. So you have to bite the bullet sometime. Yes. And and what about the role that um, the academic community might play in that? I mean, I know you personally have, have long been a champion of scientific research underpinning the food industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, what part do food scientists have to play in, in the recovery? I think if you take a step back and, and think about agri-food, not as a supply chain, but as a value chain, a value proposition to the consumer. Um, and then you say, where have value chains be the most effective? And a very simple example is Boeing versus Airbus. They're not two companies, they're two value chains collaborating on designing a, a, an agreed outcome and each part of the chain bringing their expertise to that component of the outcome they're working for. So an agreed blueprint, um, and then everybody working to their strengths to deliver on that blueprint across the chain. So so what are, and Northern Ireland is so small, we have the ability to get a dozen people in the room and you have the whole of the value chain there. And what is a proposition? Well, are we delivering what the consumer needs? We know in New Zealand, they went through terrible upheaval and now they're delivering a low cost product. We knew in um, Australia, they went through a lot of upheaval and then they started to deliver um, product that actually had texture, taste, all the value propositions the consumer likes. But that requires research and development. It requires nutrition, it requires genetics, it requires good stockmanship. And therefore at every point in the chain, you need the science 
behind the businesses that are collaborating to deliver an agreed outcome that the product at the end has all the right taste and texture but is naturally healthy because of the way we went about feeding the animals even the way we went about delivering soil nutrition that transfers to animal nutrition that transfers to human nutrition if you drive genetics and performance more of what the animal feeds is converted into milk or meat unless of it arises as waste you know ammonia is a big issue in the industry ammonia is about the waste wasted proteins the lost opportunity to build flesh in an animal because of how the biological engine known as the rumen works and you're just sitting there thinking to yourself if you've got all of the talent that exists and says you know what we're going to design a value chain that is going to deliver the best product the most efficient way uh, with a, uh, where it delivers value to the environment and not a challenge to the environment that would be one powerful engine that could grow our industry but behind it is the science needed to deliver at each point, each touch point in that chain, the value that the consumer wants. So really a partnership approach then? It has to be hand and glove collaboration with a common view and a common destination. And some of the things that have been barriers to that, you know, subsidy was useful in some respects. It kept farms alive, but it didn't really align the value proposition and the environmental proposition. Uh, changes to farm support are looking along the lines of environmental goods, but we have to design a framework in the future where you have complementary outcomes in food and environmental production and not competing outcomes, because competing outcomes will deliver a poor result than a supply chain that delivers health, performance, value, and an environment we can all enjoy in the weekends when we go to the country. Lots of food for thought there, Declan. But we can't really finish without mentioning the B word, which is <laughs> probably your favourite word at the minute, Brexit. Yeah. Now, obviously, we could talk and you could talk all day long about trade deals, tariffs and border controls, especially here in the island of Ireland. But as this podcast is primarily about the impact of COVID, we'll, we'll not go into Brexit too much, but obviously they are, um, you know, indivisible in, in some ways. And there, there must be a huge amount of overlap between uh, what's happening at the minute and also, you know, the path to recovery from COVID. Is it possible just to give us a brief overview of threats and opportunities posed by Brexit and how they might fit in or, or dovetail with a COVID recovery plan? In terms of opportunities, COVID has been a wake-up call that the short-termism in our supply chains, whilst they may work for the next five or ten years, will, in my mind, eventually create a train wreck at some point, be it another COVID-like event or a weather event, that um, results in empty supermarket shelves and challenges as to why did we allow this to happen. So we, so it's it's a message about short-termism versus long-termism is, is a positive opportunity to realise the near-miss we've had and to fix things that we don't ever get that exposed again with extended supply chains and growing dependence on imports to feed our nation. The, the threats of Brexit are more nearby. There's going to be upheaval um, when we finally leave the transition. We have had the UK government say that they will sort of gently roll in um, checks and controls on European goods. And Europe is a very high quality supply chain. 
to be sourcing from. But in a new deal, the UK is going to have to tax European meat and dairy products at rates of between 15 and 60 percent, just as they would tax goods coming from South America or North America by the same rates. And overnight in a no deal, you're going to have a major swing in your supply chains to people we've never traded with substantially in 40 years without the resources um, at ports to make sure what's coming in is safe and without the knowledge and auditing that we have done of the factories and the originating countries to feel comfortable we can trust them in what we send. If you had a problem somewhere around the world next year, a problem that would involve the destruction of your product or the incineration of it, and and you know that there is a high value market with poor controls, at least for the nearby, what would you do? Would you destroy your product or would you blend it away and hope you can run the gauntlet of a very poor assurance chain? Um, and Brexit and actually COVID taught us this, it taught us that actually we started to see, as I said, high bacterial counts coming from supply chains and without the auditors auditing because of COVID, you're getting desktop audits rather than real on the ground audits. And Brexit is a proxy for that because we don't have the infrastructure to do the on the ground audits of our new supply chains in a no deal. So I'm very worried in the short term about our ability to avoid horse gate type events um, in the next six to 12 months that damages the consumer's confidence in food entirely, when in fact they have two supply chains. Longer term, I would hope the UK and everybody recognises the long-term value of a good ind sustainable industry. And we realise it without the need to go through a disaster in terms of food scares before we actually start to value what we do locally. I think I can probably speak for the both of us when I say I hope you're right about the latter point. Um, I hope this is an opportunity, as you say, to to learn from from lessons and and build up a more resilient and and long term food industry. But we've we've covered a lot today, and obviously we've merely touched on most of those um, subjects. They're so complex. But thank you so much, Declan, for sharing your thoughts and, and bringing some clarity to what can be a very confusing picture as the food industry attempts to recover from this very disruptive and challenging period. And we wish you and all the local food heroes the very best for the months ahead. And that brings us to the end of this episode. You can listen to it again and all the podcasts in the COVID-19 and food series on our website. That's www.qub.ac.uk forward slash IGFS. And please don't forget to follow us on Twitter too, at QUBIGFS. Until the next time, goodbye.